Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Altaspeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Mr. Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. Good evening. I'm going to flip the script on this one, and I'm going to play Ask the Audience, if you'll indulge me. Yeah, we do that from time to time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I have been working to to do this rather complicated process, and I've I've scripted it all out, except that I have to be able to pass in a dash D flag into curl, and I was hoping to use a variable to do that. And I tried this for about two hours before I gave up. I tried everything that I could find on the internet for using a variable inside of dash D for curl because curl is different than other things. So it's not a a regular JSON structure. It's um, variable. It's something equals and then my variable. So I'm passing Mm -hmm. in a parameter. um, And for whatever reason, I tried and I tried and I can't get it to work. So if you know how to solve this, I would really appreciate it if you'd write in at live at asknoahshow.com. And uh, I will write you back if your suggestion works. And I definitely will thank you uh, if we get this working. Can we maybe put like maybe a little text thing together, like just the the code snippet that you're looking for help on? We can put it up on Slexi or something. That way we can link to it and people can kind of visualize what you're talking about. Absolutely. Let me uh, let's talk about this after the show and uh, we'll do that together. Let's do it. Let's jump into feedback. Wife writes in and says, Hi, Ask Noah Show. A tech staffer at SDSU pointed me your way with regards to specific help question. I have with my recently upgraded, and he uses his air finger quotes, Wi-Fi network and my pie hole. First, I'm a relative noob with all things Linux and adjacent and only dabble from time to time in the tech world outside of my graphic photo design bubble. One area of concern for me is my home internet privacy, hence... While I'm bound and determined to set up, well, reset up a Raspberry Pi hole. My previous Wi-Fi network setup consisted of a very basic Netgear Orbi, one of the early models with the two white boxes. I set up my Pi hole in an early generation Raspberry Pi version 2 as a recursive DNS server following the instructions from Craft Computing put together by here. And he links to a YouTube video. This worked great. I never had a problem. But simply turning the Pi hole off and on or updating wouldn't solve. However... A little over eight months ago, I went with a local fiber provider, now called Bluepeak, and they installed a very slick, seemingly more complicated, Wi-Fi mesh network system using Eero Pro. Since then, I've gotten the Pi Hole. I haven't, I've not, never gotten the Pi Hole to work properly. After numerous hours still banging my head against the proverbial wall, I, and followed, this tutorial geared towards Pi Hole with Eero. And it works! but only when I'm directly connected to my Ethernet switch. Here are some hopefully helpful screenshots of my connection settings via the Eero app and the Pi Hole itself. I'm assuming I'm missing a setting somewhere that would allow the Eero Wi-Fi mesh to call back and route through the Pi Hole. However, troubleshooting what is wrong seems to be just too far beyond my abilities. One additional item of note. I set up the custom DNS reroute via the Euro app and then later to reset it by default because the rest of the house is not no longer has internet. I have to call Bluepeak to help with the staff to send a reset signal from their end to the Euro. When I do this on my end, the app simply spins and never fully resets. I'm open to suggestions at this point. And now, so I've abandoned the recursive DNS server at this point. I would love to do this again when the final hurdle is over. So if this would further complicate things, please let me know what I can do to prepare for that as well. Lastly, two show-related things. I'm very interested in getting Nextcloud up and running at home. Do you have an episode of Ask Noah Show that discusses this? And if so, uh, and if this makes it to the show, please let me know and I'll be sure to download the episode. Not an avid listener? I might miss it. Finally, if it works better to reach out to you via chat or phone, please let me know. Thanks for your time, wife. So I want to start here. 
this uh, the 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 company Blue Peak and this Eero Wi-Fi mesh system. This is something that has caught my attention recently for a couple of reasons. The first thing that uh, that drew my attention to it is it's really really popular with a lot of ISPs, and a big part of that is because they're able to tie into it and push stuff to it. And so ISPs like it because that's how that that's how they get it on their app and how they can push changes and all of those kinds of things. So I wouldn't entirely rule out that it might have something to do with the with the fact that you're using that system. I wonder if it would be possible to move away from the Eero wireless and go towards a traditional router and access point system because I suspect all if most if not all of these issues would go away. But part you know the first thing you would start looking at when you're having trouble with DNS and is it resolving right and all of those starts of things you start looking in well what DNS server is the DHCP server handing out what D- D- DNS record what are these clients querying? Um, and the inability to look up some of those things or the inability to change some of those things is problematic. I'm also, it would make me real uncomfortable that you have to call uh, your ISP to push some of these changes or to make changes. That, I, I don't know, I just, there's something about that that doesn't sit well with me either. Um, I get that it's a reset signal. I just, I don't know. There's, I think there's something there. As far as actually troubleshooting your DNS issue, I suspect it likely has something to do with the Euro Wi-Fi, and I'm not sure that that system is going to support you changing anything. Now, Steve, you had some thoughts because you've had some experiences with uh, with Android phones doing some clever things. Yeah, so I also suspect it's the Euro stuff. Uh, I have noticed that Android phones and most Android devices will not let you really switch the the DNS provider. So Mm. even though you go in there and you toggle it, it's still going to put the primary as 8.8.8.8, which is Google's DNS. Mm -hmm. And I would not be surprised at the least if Amazon is doing something also like this. Both companies make a a decent amount of... I'm not sure money is the right word, but they, they definitely value your data and DNS data is valuable. So I would not at all be surprised if the Eero was doing something similar to what Android was doing. Um, it's yeah, it just seems it seems like the Wi-Fi is doing something hinky. I would I would try setting up your own Wi-Fi and with Piehole and just see if they will use your Piehole. And if they do then you've probably narrowed it down. Mm-hmm. Even if you can't hook it up to your internet because, I don't know, your ISP doesn't let you switch out your your equipment, you would at least be able to narrow it down and say like, okay, here's my test. I have my own, I don't know, let's say Linksys router. I put it on and I can see that my pie hole is receiving requests even though it can't get anywhere. Do the same thing with your Eero. Don't plug it into the internet uh, just to make an apples to apples test right. and just say, okay, is the pie hole seeing the the stuff? If it's not, then there's a problem with the arrow. What before I open up with both guns blazing here? What are your thoughts on mesh systems? So I like the Unify um, mesh systems. The it has to be done right. I have found now my my experience is now dated because I've been on Unify for three or four years now. And but you're not on mesh tech- though. Uh, I am. I'm on. I well. I suppose technically I don't have the mesh enabled here. Right. right? So like I mean, you have physical uplinks to each one of your access points. My understanding of the way this Eero mesh system works, you have one that connects back to the base, and then each one kind of hops off the the next one or the last one. Yeah, it uses a wireless backhaul. I have absolutely set up a wireless backhaul with Unify in my in-laws' house because running a cable just was not feasible to where it needed to go. Sure. So um, it's okay. I mean, it gets the job done. I definitely wouldn't do it for any kind of performance. I have 100% noticed the difference um, being in different quadrants of the house depending on whether you're using the wireless backhaul or not. So that's where my frustration with this comes in, right? It's a compromise. You're essentially, what you're doing anytime you're doing mesh is you are, instead of instead of everybody having their own home run back to the base and there, thereby allowing everything to perform equally, everything further down the pipe, so to speak, has to 
pass its traffic up the chain. And so the guy at the very top of the chain has to handle the traffic from everybody below him. And that obviously has a scaling problem. Like there's there's it can it can only work so well. Um, So it seems like we've the thing that bothers me about it is it's like it's a compromise, but we've decided to compromise just as a starting point. And I get it. Sometimes you don't have a choice and you have to use a wireless uplink. And I've absolutely done that in places. It just it isn't my first choice. And it's kind of it seems frustrating that the guy has an Ethernet switch and it sounds like he had a regular network before. And then his ISP came in and swapped this out. So I, I might start pushing back on the ISP a little bit and say, hey, I'd like to go back to just having a regular router. And, you know, that would open you up to using something like PFSense or OpenSense or something like that. But I mean, I absolutely would do that, too. I have I have done that. I've been a very noisy customer in the past <laughs> until they've relented. I've even gone so far. And this is true. Gone so far as to tell them I need to put my own equipment in for work purposes. And oh, yeah. So like, you know. You're going to have to deal with it or I'm going somewhere else. Yeah, can you, kind of a bluff, can you, how want to sit in on the call when you call the ask, hi, yes, I need to uh, reconfigure my Eero wireless. Yeah, what are you doing, sir? Uh, Kubernetes cluster. Excuse me? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to set up OpenShift. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. So can you, can you, uh, can you go ahead and set that up for me? Because I'm having some trouble. See, the, the OpenShift is not, that would be funny. That would be hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. Call your ISP. Um, as far as the second part about running uh, Nextcloud, I'm sure we've done an episode, but the, the you know in the past, the truth is with Nextcloud, it's super easy. I mean, you can you could grab a server and uh, install Ubuntu base on it, sudo snap install uh, Nextcloud server, and you'd have it up and running in minutes. I mean, it's super fast. But I'll tell you what I do. If you want some one-on-one help, you just reply back live at asknoahshow.com. Let me know a day and time that works for you, and I'll set you up with one of our techs and have them available to you. And then if you run into any trouble, they can help you. But it, it's a really, really smooth process. Um, I don't know that we have any sort of tutorial available, but it, the reason for that is partly because it is so easy. If you can set up a pie hole, you can absolutely set up Nextcloud. Are you using the Snap at Alta Speed? Uh, well, we do something kind of different because we've got a bunch of services running on a single server. So the answer there is no, but I have used the Snap at my house and I've had no problems with it. I don't really trust the Snap in production. Uh, and that really? goes back a ways. Yeah, because because you the auto upgrade doesn't always serve you well. Oh. So, uh, and that's not that's not just a Snap thing. That is uh, like don't auto upgrade your um, two features. That's yeah. that's the problem, right? Auto upgrade for security patch and stuff like that. Sure, thumbs up. Uh-huh. Do not do feature flags because you never like. For example, uh, upgrading Nextcloud if it happened automatically, it will disable some plugins for you. So things that you might be using frequently that are official but not enabled by default will be disabled again, such as contacts or or things like that. That's bit me numerous times, even though I'm doing the manual upgrade. Um, today so, I learned. Yeah, it's it's not, and that that's not because of Snap. That's because Snap auto updates. So it's not. Right. Don't use Snap. It's well, you know, let's not use technology that does auto upgrade. You should be in control of something that's doing feature upgrades. Well, to your point, Steve, I just went to nextcloud.com, and they offer you a couple different choices for the server. They offer you a one-click sign-up, which is essentially they set you up with a provider. But if you're going to do that again, just write out to me. I'll help you with that. Uh, enterprise solutions, they have an enterprise version where they'll set it up, but then they really just, they, they have a Docker image, which I know you'll love, Steve. So you just download that Docker image and it's all set up for you, or you can download a VM image that's all set up for you, or they have a web install, but they don't actually mention the snap. So all of those things are fine. I don't mind the, like the, the Docker compose stuff. You're still in control of that. It doesn't auto roll. You still have to go like, you know, compose down, compose up to pull the new version. So, um, the the rail here is not against the technology as much as like it's just a bad idea to roll feature sets because something might break and you won't know why <laughs> right like i didn't upgrade the server just yeah. one day all of a sudden like my themes changed and this thing doesn't work or you know whatever right you think that might be advantageous if you had like a home user that you know didn't have a lot of system administration experience and just like hey i just want to set it up and and have it run so it could accept, like I said, I've had it where contacts just disappeared. And so then the wife's hmm. like, where are my contacts on my phone? Ooh, right. Yeah, that would right. be good. Uh, let me go check. 
Uh, it looks like they still do support the snap install. I guess have that in mind. I will tell you that our instance at UltaSpeed, the one that we use, it does auto it does auto upgrade. And I've never had a problem. But then again, we don't have like we don't have any plugins. We don't. Of course, we have contacts. And I, uh, but so your mileage may vary. I guess that's really the answer there. So I would, um, yeah. If you're if you're wanting an easy way to get started, though, I still am probably going to say maybe check out uh, the snap install. All right, next email. Comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, Good day. Why can't the church stream via AM FM and just use an outdoor proof radio along with providing signage of what frequency they can use in their radio or car stereo? So this takes us back to last week when a guy wrote in and asked, Hey, how do I get speakers on the outside of my church? And of course, Steve and I both jumped to, You run a wire because that's the most reliable way to get a thing from point A to point B. But Charlie points out a really interesting suggestion here because AM FM transmitters are A, very inexpensive, B, sound really good, and C, it enables you to consume that content a variety of different ways. You can have it playing. You could have a little AM FM radio out there that's playing it outside of speakers. You could have, as Steve was mentioning last week, the little rock speakers or whatever and have uh, you know an FM tuner, or you can go pull it up from your car or something like that. So I think that's a great idea. Any follow-up thoughts to that, Steve? No, I, I put this in the show immediately because I was like, why didn't we think of this? Like, it's <laughs> it's not exactly low-tech, but it's it went, neither of us considered like, hey, this thing that, that literally people have been doing for decades yep. still works, still valid. Why Keep don't it we simple, do that? stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Our third email comes in from Brett. Brett writes in and says, hey, Noah, in regards to the caller asking about network switches for their church using audio over IP, for what it's worth? My church has a complete Unify system and a Dante, and it works flawlessly. An overview of our setup is the following. 100 megabits symmetric fiber internet, UDM Pro router, Unify switches, UAP Pros, but these aren't used with Dante. Our core router, but the main 48-port switch and a second secondary 48-port switch in another area of the switch is, church is connected via a 10 gigabit per second fiber node. Our broadcast room also has a switch with a 10 gig fiber link. Other connections are smaller switches and back to those cores with a 1 gig link. The Dante traffic goes between the broadcast room and our main auditorium between multiple Allen and Heath audio mixers with Dante cards. We also have Dante coming from a MacBook running tracks for the band. So I don't know how much of the traffic it generates, but we have a lot of channels for the band running over it. Also, oh, and we do have a secondary Dante network that is completely standalone for mixers running back to a single Cisco uh, SG switch. So I guess there's a chance that the secondary kicks in without us noticing, but we have not had any problems. It's probably more, way more info than you wanted and not enough details at the same time. Let me know if the listeners want any more information. I tell you what, I think that's great. Um, it tells you that you can successfully use Unify switches in, in Dante. If you're not familiar with Dante, we've talked about it the past few weeks. It's essentially a... a audio over IP protocol that's very popular in live production. Um, and the only thing I would add to this is if you're running, uh, what is it, Prime, the Prime app uh, for doing your uh, tracks, then it's essentially two channels. One channel is carrying the the cues and the click, and then the other channel carries all of the, all of the inst- recorded instruments. Um, so ooh, likely it's a dual channel that's coming out of your Mac, but very cool. So we'll have that in there. And to those of you that are looking at implementing Dante at your house of worship or your or your production, um, it turns out Unify might be a good way to go for switches there. Our fourth email comes in from Jeremy. Jeremy writes in and says, hey there, I'm wondering about options for expanding storage at home. Currently, my PC cases have slots for two 5.25 drives and I have a few options. Buy another case with many bays or use some sort of JBot enclosure for the volumes. Any links to one. Although I could do the work of rebuilding it in another case, I think it would be easier just to use an external enclosure. Also, I could potentially just hook up a laptop with USB-C. Not sure I'm getting any pitfalls here. I'm using ZFS as a mirror currently, but was thinking about four plus Rust drives with RAID Z1. Best, Jeremy. So Steve, what would be your thought if this guy was looking to expand storage? I mean, there's no no problem with um, some sort of external drive enclosure. Mm-hmm. You have to make sure that you know why you're doing the the storage. If you're looking for throughput or latency, that's probably a bad time because you're going to basically be shoving all four or six or however many drives over one bus, whether it's you know USB-C, right. serial, whatever it is. Yes. Um, and all the data then every time you're accessing or moving stuff. 
Exactly. But if you're just using it to like, I don't know, watch home movies or, you know, store your tax documents or whatever, it'll be fine. Right. So depends on the use case and why you're doing it. Text me- or a, a chat room says, Steve, use Watchtower if you want up if you want to auto update in Docker. First party plugins like contacts are updated and maintained by Nextcloud, so they should be ready for use with the new version. You can park that somewhere. Up, I don't want to up, auto-update. <laughs> Did you miss the part? Where he... <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I, I am not a big fan of expanding storage, I'll be honest with you. I'm more a fan of building a box to hold the storage to begin with, and I get there pretty quick because... It is so expensive to go back and redo something that I would rather just build it right the first time. And as Steve pointed out, you're kind of setting yourself up for uh, some some potential performance flaws. Although I will say this, when I was a poor college student, I moved out of my parents' house. I for like the first like eight years that I lived on my own, I I had a I had a, a repurposed IBM Think Center server with a USB hard drive hanging off the back and it worked just fine. Like it was I mean it wasn't gonna win any perform you know performance competitions, but I could store files on it and I could read files and I could stream media off of it. And that's what I wanted and that's what worked. So maybe consider that as well. Our fifth email comes in from Russell. Russell writes in and says, I absolutely love your show. I never miss an episode. I'm writing in to respond to your question on storage. I have a Ceph cluster, not really because I need it, but because it's fun. My problem is it breaks fairly often. And I've arrived at the conclusion that I don't know what I'm doing. Should I give up on Ceph and move to ZFS as you and Steve have suggested? My primary storage array is running around 60 terabytes. So... <laughs> If I read this email, it sounds like it started out fun. Now it's not fun anymore because now it's breaking. Ceph is really fantastic if you have, you know, a rack full of server, a rack full of storage, and you have to have a way to connect it, and you don't, you know, you need you need centralized storage. I don't know, even if I had a sixty terabyte array in my house, that I would use Ceph. What are your thoughts, Steve? Depends on the use case. Probably not, though. Um, Ceph is useful for things like if you have to expose different types of storage over the network. So block storage or, you know, because it can do object block. It can do file storage. It can do all that sort of stuff. If you're just using it as a file storage, it's overblown. Mm -hmm. It's got a lot of overhead for no reason at all. So um, I like Ceph. I don't have a problem with it. I honestly went, nah, you know what? I'm going to throw, I have 24, yeah, 24 SSDs and I threw it into TrueNAS and just mm-hmm. did ZFS and exposed them over over TrueNAS. So uh, I even went the other way. I just was like, no, this is way too much. Like it, the complexity is not worth it. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm with you. And, and so it, continue to send us in those uh, questions or thoughts on storage. It, we're trying to find a date to do the storage roundtable. It sounds like it's not going to be something we'll be able to do live on Tuesday. Um, so we might pre-record it ahead of time and then we'll air a segment of it. But um, yeah, keep writing in and letting us know what things you're interested in, what things work for you, what things don't work and where your questions are around storage. Somebody from the Geek Lab works on my box, says, any advice on PFSense, Unify and VLANs? Now, quick follow up. Since we started the episode, he's actually got he's it's actually just started working, but he doesn't know why. I went to add a VLAN today and I can't connect to it. In PFSense, I created the VLAN and attached it to the correct interface. I created the firewall rules identical to the ones that I have on my other working VLANs, and I set up a DHCP server to the correct IP ranges. In Unify, I created a VLAN only network. This auto generates the port profile. Anytime I switch to a port to that profile, I can't connect. With another VLAN, with the exact same settings, except a different VLAN tag and IP scheme, it works. I'm a complete loss here. I was curious if anybody had a similar setup to see if they'd be willing to create a dummy VLAN and test this. I was even watching YouTube videos and uh, wasn't able to get it working. So uh, here's here's I think here's where I would start. I think where I would start with this is the following. I would look to see what your trunk port is set that's feeding from... Uh, the PFSense box out to the Unify switch because so when Unify treats VLANs really really weird, they have this as you alluded to they have this thing, this idea of profiles and networks and so they give it like a common name and then if you want to add a tag you're it's kind of like oh, okay that's we also kind of support that but they really want you to do everything with tags so if you have the trunk 
the trunk port needs to be set to all because it has to be able to see all of those profiles. And then the individual access ports, you would you would switch back to the individual VLAN unless you're going to an access point, in which case you're going to leave that as a trunk port so that you can tag the trunk or the, uh, the VLANs across the trunk out to the access point. Um, past that, I have absolutely had it numerous times. In fact, we were doing an onboarding of a new client like a week ago or two weeks ago. And I was out there and we were setting up VLAN stuff on the switches. And Kenny asked me, he's like, I can't get it to work. I have everything. So I double checked his work. I'm like, nope, you got it right. I'm like, here's the deal. I might just let it sit for 12 hours and come back to it and see if it starts working. And sure enough, the next morning he came back in and it starts working. So sometimes you get static stuff that just gets cached in weird places. And if you just let it sit for a little bit, stuff starts flowing through. Um, so that, and again, throughout the episode before we could get to his feedback, he actually got it, it started working for him. So, but if you have thoughts on, or suggestions on working with VLANs and Unify, please write in live at asknoahshow.com. I'd love to take those. Espanso, it is a open source licensed under GPL text expander. It's available for Windows, Linux, and Mac OS. And really what it does is fixes the problem of you being tired of typing the same old sentences over and over and over again. You can discover the incredible possibility of a full-blown text expander. So it Espanso detects when you type in a keyword and automatically replaces what with what you're and automatically replaces it while you're typing. So no more copy and pasting, no more creating temp you just create a template once and let Espanso do the rest for you. You can use it for customer support replies, you can use it for sales pitches, medical reports, you can use it in the terminal. Uh, you name it, Espanso has you covered. Don't remember a shortcut? No problem. Just hit alt space and a Spanso search bar will pop up and it'll let you search for the exact co exact uh, text snippet that you're looking for. For advanced use cases, you can also extend Espanso snippets for shell commands or custom scripts. So no more copying from the terminal, just inject the output right into the application directly. Now, here's where it gets real cool. They have a hub and you can share your shortcuts with other people and other people can share their Espanso shortcuts with you. So people have written things like IPv4, IPv6, and it automatically finds your IPv4 and IPv6 address and enters it into the document or the terminal or wherever it is you're typing. I can't tell you how excited I was to come across this for a couple of reasons. First of all, I'm a terrible speller. If I don't have a spell check, I'm, I'm useless. I, it's frightful. So I'm constantly finding myself saving little little snippets of, of text that I use all the time in professional letters or emails or whatever. And then it kind of starts on my template and then I fill in the names and all that kind of stuff. Well, Spanso has essentially replaced all of that as well as things like using fish in the terminal it is a big part of why I like fish is because it ought to complete stuff and I have a terrible memory. So again, using Spanso, it automatically expands that text out and allows you to do that uh, all with one piece of software. Second piece I want to draw your attention to is something called ShuffleCake. You can learn more at ShuffleCake.net. ShuffleCake is a tool for Linux that allows you to create multiple hidden volumes on a storage device in such a way that it's very difficult to detect even under forensic inspection to prove the existence of such a volume. Now, this can be useful for people that are maybe fighting freedom of expression or are threatened by repressive authorities or live in a dangerous criminal or <laughs> live in a dangerous criminal or or a dangerous criminal organization in particular whistleblowers or investigative journalists so shuffle cake each hidden volume is encrypted with a different secret key and that's scrambled across the empty space of an underlying existing storage medium and that makes it indistinguishable from random noise when it's not decrypted even in the presence of the shuffle cake software itself cannot be hidden, and hence the presence of the secret volumes is suspected. The number of volumes is also hidden. This allows a user to create a hierarchy of plausible deniability whereby which the most hidden secret volumes are buried under less hidden decoy volumes. And passwords can be, quote-unquote, surrendered under pressure. In other words, a user can lie and say, here's my password, and then it gives you access to fake data that isn't really the data you're trying to hide. Shufflecake.net, highly recommend you check this out. This is the, the predecessor of this was, uh, you know, Veracrypt and TrueCrypt. TrueCrypt is what uh, Edward Snowden used to uh, to secure NSA documents as he um, traveled with them to get them to journalists. Um, so has a has a kind of a cool history um, and the latest evolution of it, Shufflecake. Again, GPL software, you can find more at Shufflecake.net.
The Ubuntu Summit wrapped up, and uh, Ultaspeed developer Simon Quigley returned, and I chatted with him a little bit, and he had this to say. Till Camper announced the extension for WSL to allow many old printers to be supported, even when Windows 11 removes the support for them. It's called open printing, and it's really revolutionary. It's using Linux to bridge the gap between old hardware and new hardware. KDE had a pretty big offering at the event. Talks were performed on by KDE Neon, KDE Frameworks, Calamari's, and the Universal System Installer by Debian, Manjaro, Ubuntu Studio, and Lubuntu. The big takeaway here is it's all QT6, and it's a lot closer than it seems. During Academy, only a few months prior, some developers were using Plasma, backed with only QT6. They're estimating the availability early next year. As with almost all tech conferences, the real value in the meetup was the hallway track, he said, and the opportunity to build relationships. Mark made a point in the opening uh, plenary that beer is cheaper than water. And so the conference was really meant to get everyone working together again. And Mark publicly recognized that the last five years have been very difficult for Canonical and that they've ded- they have a dedicated team working to specifically on community and internal relations. The style of the conference, I asked him kind of how it felt, and he said it mimicked the old UDS days where Ubuntu contractor, or contributors came together to plan the next big release. And as Mark said in his opening plenary, again, uh, if there's any video to watch, that's the one you want to watch. This is meant to get everyone talking on good terms again. Snaps are where Canonical has interest, but the entire desktop won't be snapped. Uh, he said that he had the privilege of being a leading voice in the flavor panel with every single flavor from Ubuntu Mate, Ubuntu Studio, Ubuntu Budgie, to Ubuntu all in the same room. One hour wasn't nearly enough, but they made monumental progress. And the session wasn't recorded, but he said that they discussed the new flavor process and the current roadblocks for flavors in terms of infrastructure, ease of use, and other items. All of the right people from Jonathan Riddle to Martin Wimperis to uh, Rudra Swash. Sarswat, uh, were in the room together, and he said it was just a huge privilege and an honor. Finally, Canonical is redoubling down their efforts on the community, and it's important to Mark. He said he wants all the right people working on it, and from the amount of free beer and food to the boat right at the end where they were encouraging everyone uh, to double fish champagne and beer and wine, uh, they really did it right. And so it was a huge success. We ha- will have all three days for you linked uh, in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Rocky Linux has launched a new foundation, the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation. Unlike other foundations, though, the RESF is not a nonprofit foundation. Instead, it's a Delaware Public Benefits Corporation, or Type B Corp. Unlike a nonprofit corporation, a Type B Corp can seek to make profit. However, a Type B must spend some of its profits and resources in support of a specific public benefit. The RESF wants to make sure that Rocky Linux does not fall into the same trap that CentOS did. In the Rocky Enterprise Software Foundation's case, the community will make certain that Rocky Linux's dependencies, sources, and build artifacts remain free and open source and reproducible. This is codified in the RESF's charters and bylaws. Red Hat has released RHEL 8.7 with many new features and capabilities, such as improved live patching, new system roles, and system-wide crypto policies, among others. The 6.0.8 kernel has been released. Postgres 15.1 and MariahDB 10.9.4 have also been released. Pipewire 0.3.60 is out. Alma Linux 8.7 has been released. And Microsoft has released .NET 7 with improved Linux support and performance. In gaming news, SteamOS 3.4 beta release is out and improves performance and stability. Sony has added DualShock 4 controller support to their newest Linux PlayStation driver. And NVIDIA has decided to release the NVIDIA physics technology as open source under a BSD license. And lastly, in security news, checkmark security researchers have disclosed a GitHub vulnerability that allows threat actors to hijack and poison thousands of open source packages with millions of users. Dubbed repojacking, the vulnerability affects the GitHub retired namespace feature that protects repositories from renamed user accounts.
$152 billion lost in three days. If you've been even remotely following the news headlines, you've probably seen this happen. So FTX was a Bitcoin or excuse me, a cryptocurrency exchange that launched their own coin called FTT or the FTT token. The FTT token lost 80% of its worth in just 72 hours. And so it all revolves around the guy who founded FTX named Sam Bankman Freed. And the question right now is, should he be facing criminal charges? You have to in order to unpack this, you have to go back to when he started a company called Alameda Research, a trading firm that was founded by him and the CEO of which was his girlfriend, Carolina Ellison. So FTX was launched as this cool kid of the block and was acceptable to mainstream non-nerds. And so it was attracting investors, places like Wall Street. Binance, the large, the world's largest crypto exchange, competed with them and eventually invested in FTX. Uh, FTX was the fourth largest crypto exchange, I believe. And so what ended up happening here was FTX and and the uh, Almeida Research were supposed to be separate companies. But what ended up happening was Almeida Research, in an effort to try to save struggling cryptocurrency companies back in the spring, uh, Sam Sam Bankman-Fried decided he was going to bail these places out. And so he bailed out a company called Voyeur Digital to the tune of a half billion dollars. And he used the money from... Uh, from Alameda Research to do that. And so a little bit later, Voyager Digital files for bankruptcy. And Alameda Research then, of course, loses their half-million-dollar investment. Sam, Bank- Sam Bankman-Friedman transfers $10 billion of customer funds, customer funds, money that didn't belong to him that was on the exchange on FTX, a company that had nothing to do with Alameda Research, transfers $10 billion from FTX over to Alameda Research to keep them afloat. So two weeks ago, Coindesk published this report in which they produced an Alameda balance sheet, and it showed that Alameda claimed they had $14 billion, 40% of their total assets. But guess what? It's 40% of it was in FTT tokens. So if you're following that, Alameda Research, the company that his girlfriend owns, had $14 billion of assets, 40% of which is in a token that her that is on an exchange that her boyfriend owns. So he's shuffling money around the sandbox. Nobody's quite noticing, right? So this report comes out and people start freaking out. People start pulling out of FDX. November 6th, Binance announces that they would liquidate any remaining FTT tokens because they, you know, they're pulling out too. So this now sends a spiral and now we can't be reversed. November 6th, $4 billion down. November 7th, $8 billion down. November 8th, FTX reaches out to Binance and says, help. Uh, we're done. We're, we're not going to make this. I, I need some help. Can you buy us out? So Binance signs a letter of intent to purchase FTX, but it's subject, of course, to due diligence because they're not going to write a check like that without checking these people out. November 9th, they come back and say, yeah, we did our due diligence. No way, Jose. We're backing out. And from there, obviously, the, you know, the, the death is complete. So November 11th rolls around and it comes out that Bankman Freed funneled this money from FTX to Almeida to, to keep it afloat after Almeida loses its half billion dollars. And then he finally comes out and says, yeah, we can't cover withdrawals. He resigns as CEO and he files for bankruptcy. So a new CEO takes over and they start looking into this hack that there's $370 million just missing. Customer money missing is just over a billion dollars. Nobody knows where it went. And the mainstream media, as I've watched this evolve over the last two weeks, is losing their mind and blaming this on cryptocurrency. Oh, you have to be careful. Uh, nobody could have seen this coming. I'm just investing in crypto is a very dangerous and volatile thing to do. You gave the private keys to your coins to somebody you didn't know, a company that's been around for maybe five years. And now you turn around and wonder why you lost all of your money. Come on. This is the problem.
when you have people that don't understand what they're doing and want to just make money, they're not after the tech. They're not after it for the interest or for learning or as a hedge against inflation. It's none of that. It's crypto is the cool word. So everybody wants to be in on the crypto. And this is where I can just download my app and I can just go do this. And this guy, because he went to the schools that other people that work in the finance sector do, this is a guy who they can get along with and they can understand it. He can go on MSNBC and CNN and all of these news networks and talk about how great this crypto thing is. And there was a, st- a sports stadium that was named after FTX. I mean, this is just a very palatable thing to quote unquote normal people. And in 72 hours, it went from tens of billions of dollars, it went from the, 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 the fourth largest exchange in the world to nothing. And so the takeaway here is anytime you upload your keys to somebody else, <laughs> I hope you trust them because if you'd have managed your own currency and you would have kept your own keys, nobody could take the money. Nobody could spend your money. Steve, I want to, I want to jump over to you a little bit. I know before the show, I kind of talked to you, you said this, this really wasn't on your radar. Is this the kind of thing when you hear it, does it kind of make your blood boil or are you like, Meh, they got what they deserved? I mean, there's, as long as there have been people with money, there's been people to fleece them out of their money. So this is just the latest thing because I, I have no strong feelings about crypto one way or the other. It doesn't, doesn't make my blood boil. It's just like this is another case of buyer beware and someone has figured out the Nigerian prince scam in <laughs> a different way. Yeah, boy. I mean, with a lot of so so this is going to have far reaching impacts for quite some time. So first of all, again, there is this mainstream media news coverage of crypto like like it's it's the fault of it's the fault of cryptocurrency that this that this happened. It, it, it has nothing to do with this guy. It has nothing to do with his really shady business practices. It has nothing to do with him funneling money under the table to all, God knows where. It's because cryptocurrency can't be trusted. And it, it is beyond frustrating to me. And you know, it's funny. The, every time I thought I was like, huh, that's interesting. So there's an exchange is going under. Interesting. We kind of watched that with Mt. Gox. And then, oh, he's funneling money over to this other company. Oh, this has been going on for a long time. Oh, and oh, and the, the more you look, the nastier it gets. And there is there is a. There is a there is there are some other ties that I can't get into in or I won't get into in Ask No, I'll save those for critical thought. But this is this is absolutely going to change the landscape of cryptocurrency. And it will also change the landscape of the way that people regulate cryptocurrency, because that's the other thing you're seeing now. There's a lot of people are coming back. The FTC originally uh, ruled that this was a it wasn't a currency. It was an asset. It was a thing. And so. It wasn't it didn't fall under the under the traditional monetary exchange laws and rules. And this is the second time we've seen a collapse. Right. The first time was Mt. Gox and whatever it was, 2014 This is the second time we've seen a collapse of an exchange. And in both both circumstances, the key culprit is the same. And that is people trusted the wrong company or the wrong person with their keys. So the answer here is fairly simple. If you're interested in getting into Uh, you know, cryptocurrency. First thing I would tell you, don't get in it to make money. It's a bad idea. It's a bad investment. If your goal is to make money, you want to make money, go invest money in something that has a long track history of doing really, really well. Okay. If you're like me and you're not, your interest is not in making money, but your interest is, is in supporting and exploring the technology because it's a cool thing to do. And it's fun to mine, it's fun to buy things in currency that you created on your computer because that's a fun technical thing to do. If that's where you're at, then I encourage you all the more to get into it. But in that case, learn how to set up a wallet. It's not that hard. You download a piece of software, you give it a, you take your address that it calculates, and you send money to it. Um, and if you want to use an exchange for the standpoint that you want to move money from one cryptocurrency to another, or you want to send money from one thing to another, that seems like that's probably okay. But your long-term storage should not be a company unless you really trust that company. And you probably shouldn't really trust any company that's been around for four or five years. In fact, I'm not sure there's been any company that's been around long enough that I would tell you, oh, yeah, 100%, you could trust them to take care of your your coins. I mean, that defeats the entire purpose of Bitcoin. If you want just electronic access to money, I mean, go use PayPal. Uh, go use, uh, you know, Cash App or something. I, I, don't, I don't understand. The, the purpose 
and the drive to cryptocurrency is because there is a technological advantage. Once you hand that off to some company and it's just a service, I think that technical advantage goes right out the window. So, so I think you're being a little hard on people. Okay. Um, I, I am loath to be the one defending the, the general public. That's not usually the side of the aisle I find myself on. However, if you think about this like any other kind of investment vehicle, mm -hmm. I understand you're not supposed to invest, you know, blah, blah, blah. But people speculate in things all the time. Sure. We have a long history of basically delegating that um, that part of our brain. I have money. You say you have understanding and know how to like store this thing. Uh -huh. So I'm going to go, uh, you know, give you some money. You get you get a cut of it or whatever. Like uh -huh. this has happened for a long, long time. And sure. I would say, how how could you expect someone to uh, be able to suss this out when there have been a lot of endorsements? So it's not well, just that's a fair like, question. You know, there's been, there were a lot of endorsements around this, and yes, maybe some of them. Are Tom bought, Brady. All of them were bought, right? Yeah. But at the same time, how are you going to know that? How do you pick some? Like, okay, if you're going to go with Berkshire Bank or you know Morgan Chase or any of those like big, big places, like, how do you know that the people that have vetted them are not on the take as well? Like, there is some there is some point of like, yes, you should have done your due diligence, but at the same time, like, how like. I'm not exactly sure how these people could have known that this thing would have gone sideways. What is what do you think the advantage is to the average person walking around to get into cryptocurrency in the first place? I guess maybe that's the question I should be asking, because uh, if if the if the interest is in the technical, then you would want to learn how to set up a wallet and do all those things. If you're not interested in that, I don't quite understand what the appeal in crypto is. It's a speculation vehicle, right? So it's high risk, high reward. And I see. right now there there aren't as many things out there that allow you to speculate at the level of return that Bitcoin has previously been able to handle. Okay. So you would say it's more, it not, this is too strong of a word, but I'm using it as a way to illustrate a point. You would say it's kind of like gambling. It's, it's a way that I can go out and I'll hedge my money this way. And it's likely to come back with a large return as opposed to a normal investment, which would only get me like, you know, seven, 10% or whatever. And that's what speculating is. And so when you're speculating, you might expect to lose your money because it was a bad bet. You mm. don't expect the person that's handling the money transaction from your point of view to just be like, ha, 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 I'm taking the money and running away, <laughs> sucker. Like, that's not how you expect to lose your money when you're speculating. Do you know what's funny, Steve? It's He didn't. He wasn't even that brazen about it. He, he you know, he built in these, these back doors to... His, to, to FTX to where he could move money out of it without triggering any of the audits. And that's how he's able to get the money uh, over to um, uh, whatever his girlfriend's I, name, uh, name escapes me, but his girlfriend's uh, Alameda Research. Uh, he, so he, he was very, very intentional about it. And, it, and, it, and it, it, it just, I read stuff like this and I watch how that breaks down and I just kind of sit back in my chair and I'm like, Wow, that's that's really something. And Tiny points this out in the chat room. He says people are also way more familiar with letting somebody else take custody of their financial assets for them. And I guess that would be true, too. Right. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't have a safe in my house where I keep my paycheck. I, I work with a bank and it goes into the bank money and I trust that they're just going to be there tomorrow when I need my money. And that's exactly where my point was. Like we're talking about the average person that just happens to have more money than than you or I. Mm -hmm. And at some point. You have to trust some mediator because no one is going to take a million dollars from Noah under the pillow to go invest something like you have to have it somewhere to get it to them. Yeah. You know, like they're not just going to take, you know, bags full of cash. So there's there. We have decided as a society that we're setting up a technical infrastructure to move whatever we whatever digital bits we've decided have value. And that's mm -hmm. how we've been set up the last 20 ish years. And so in this way, uh, there's no difference between what happened here and what happened in Enron or Olympic or any of these other large, large fraud cases where people are cooking the books somewhere, right? You don't expect, uh, and you shouldn't live in fear that these large, like these companies are going to just go steal your money all the time. Right. Like you can't live that way. So I'm not exactly sure what these other people would 
could have done differently. We we as nerds are like, yeah, you know, you should have checked it out. Like, here's the source code. And how did you not see that, you know, you can't divide right, by they zero? Have, like, yeah, right. They should have went through an audit, Steve. It's very simple. Yeah. You just hire, you just go to GitHub and you download the source code and then you go find in a chat room or a matrix room is actually what I would prefer. And yeah, no, I get it. People don't get that. But so, I, I, I don't know. But, I just don't, I don't know how you can, I don't know how you can fault these people. Okay, you can fault them from the standpoint of like, you didn't do your due diligence that this was buyer beware. You didn't understand what you were investing in. Okay, uh, that's fair. But the whole like, the guy built a back door into the system and ripped a bunch of people off, that mm -hmm. had nothing to do with what they were investing in. No, that's true. And that, that is where the scandal is, right? It's, I mean, this guy... I, you know, I would imagine that a lot of people, I mean, like, again, Wall Street invested in FTX, right? So, I mean, he ripped, it was not just ripping off, like, individuals, he's he's ripping off some, you know, some large, well-established, you know, names. And, and we're not talking chump change either, they invested in FTX. Uh, so anyway, if you followed that saga, it, it, what a mess, what an absolute mess, but I, I just I think we have a, a level of responsibility as people who do understand the technology to, to help people understand the truth about what these things are, what they're not and how to approach them. And so when I was talking to the production crew before the show, I said, you know, what kind of things would you want to hear? And they said, really, what I would want to know is if I'm not into crypto, what would I need to know to be safe? And the answer there is the whole idea of cryptocurrency is we don't, you know, when you have a dollar, when you have a physical bill, it only has value because we all agree that it has value. And so if I want a sack of potatoes and I say, I'll give you five of these things, you have to agree that that has value. And then you'll give me the sack of potatoes. If I give you that, that thing, we could do that with anything. We do pocket lint. We could do it. We have done it with precious metals. And so cryptocurrency just moves that needle over to a math problem, basically. And, works because there is a there is an upper limit on how many coins of any particular cryptocurrency can be issued and that's where the value comes from is the fact that you that no one person controls it that value goes right out the window when everybody starts going to one central place to have them manage the thing for them uh, so there, there no longer is an advantage there and so yeah if 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 you're a regular person and you're going how did this happen or i couldn't have seen this coming most tech, I would imagine the vast majority of tech people and certainly anybody that was in crypto uh, would have looked at the speed at which FTX was growing and where it came from and some of the other shady things that were happening even before this came out and could have looked over and said, you know, that's that's a that's a mighty interesting place to store all of the private keys that allow you to sign transactions and spend money. And because he needs that and that, you know, that's that's where the security in the in the in the cryptocurrency is, is. It's just the same as your SSH key. In the same way you wouldn't give your private SSH key out uh, to anybody else, you'd keep it for yourself and you would use it to access the server to which your SSH key is on. Same thing with crypto. You, you just don't give that private key out. You leave that in place and you hang on to it. And then when you need to spend money, then you have it. And there are plenty, if you can do some Googling around, there are plenty of sites that will allow you to do like a banking service, but they couple it with the opportunity to keep your private keys offline. So when you want to go in and create a spend, then at that point you enter in your private key and then you can sign a transaction and then carry on. And, and so in that way, you can store the private key in like a physical safe, but you can still take advantage of like, you know, having an app and checking on your balance and stuff like that. That would be my advice. But man... What a, what a, what a crazy two weeks it's been in the crypto world. Again, we have all of the articles and references in the show notes. You can find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. So if you're joining us and you're thinking, I want to learn more about that or I want to read into it, I mean, you could spend hours digging into the FTX story alone. Follow us on Twitter. I'm at Ask, or I'm at Colonel Linux. He's at Linux Ovens. The show at Ask Noah Show. We record the show on Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. Have a good week.